Hey guys, today I have a very special treat for you. I sat down with Kanisha Anthony. Now, Kanisha Anthony is a social worker. She has her master's in public administration, and she also comes from foster care. So she wrote a memoir called Label Ward of the State, and she tells her experiences, and it's so sad how many miscarriages of justice there were in her situation and how many social workers didn't even know where she was while she was in care and how she was bounced from home to home and her social worker didn't even quite know. So I want you to hear her story. It's a great one. I love that she grew up and now she's fighting for child welfare advocacy and reform and she is just an incredible woman. So I'm happy to have her on the show. I also want to ask you guys, if you have listened to just one episode of this and liked it, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps. Share it with somebody you think it may be helpful for. All right, let's get started. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Thanks for meeting with me today. Um, I was so excited to see, I don't even know necessarily where I heard about your book, but I follow so much social media in the foster and adoption space that I saw it coming out. And I love uh, not only new books on the topic, but specifically memoirs or ones that document real experiences. Um, what we've heard a lot on this podcast is the people that are making the decisions about foster and adoption laws typically haven't experienced firsthand foster care or don't have kids adopted out of foster care or, you know, are removed from the situation. So one of the, um, one of the things this podcast strives to do is get the real voices at the table. Um, so I've read your book. I absolutely love it. It's a, it's a brave piece of art. And I know that it's difficult as a social worker to decide when and how and how much of your story to tell. Um, so, so it's a bold move and you're not even 30 yet, right? <laughs> no, I'm not 30. <laughs> I am not 30. Well, that's awesome. Almost like, there. <laughs> that's awesome. At least you can say all that stuff I did in my twenties. Yeah, you got a book out of it. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Most people, when I tell, well, now I just turned 28. So they're like, you're 20. It was, at first it was like, you're 27 with a memoir. Like, what do you have to talk about in a memoir? So it was like, you just really don't know what people been through in 27 years. No, well, that's true. And, and you're, yeah, you're like, I hope that I, I hope that the, uh, the next 20 aren't something to write about in this fashion. That is true. It, it seems that it's going in that direction. So. <laughs> yeah you're making sure just hope we keep going that way but yeah well so tell everyone a little bit about your background where were you born tell us a little bit about your family of origin 
So my name is Kanisha Anthony. I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. I still live in Miami, Florida. Um, I've only ever lived in Florida my whole life. Um, my family, people have been asking me a lot of questions about my family of origin. And the only thing that I can tell you about my family of origin is that we lived in Miami, Florida. I promise you that's all that I know. and. It, it's something else that's making me think about it. And um, I was kind of like, where, where is my family from? And I know like mm-hmm. my aunt who I talk about, my great aunt who I talk about in the book, like the furthest I ever know is that she lived in Hartford, Connecticut in a point of time of her life. How she got there, I don't know. Why she was there, I don't know. But she went to like she lived I know for some time she lived in Miami and then she moved to Connecticut and then she moved back to in Florida but that's like the most I know about my family of origin so but for me I'm just a young black girl that was born and raised in Miami Florida I still live here and I'm just really trying to see what the future holds for me I love it. Um, where uh, tell us how you first came into care, and what you know about that. I came into care. Well, I came into contact with the um, child welfare system at the age of four due to abandonment and neglect. Um, both my mother and my father had drug addictions, and from what was I don't from my own personal knowledge I was four years old so I don't really know what was happening around me um through having conversations with my older sister she would say it was like what was going on was that my mother had lost her husband at the time and she was trying to recoup from losing her husband and now being responsible for everything and having three children and trying to figure out that whole process financially. Um, and that's how I came into contact. And then like, I guess she, my mother just basically had, she couldn't, she, she wasn't figuring it out in a timely fashion. And she was relying on um, like her husband's family to care for us and help her through the process. But, mm-hmm. Like the way how my sister describes it to me is like she had an envious sister who called the system on us. And Mm. for me in that, like listening to it and knowing the system now, I'm like, if she was reaching out to our family, if this is, this system operates on family support. So it was just kind of, it was just a very weird situation to me Um, when she was telling it to me. So um, it was definitely about my mom. She had a drug addiction. I requested my file from the child welfare system and I read their perspective of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And according to the file, my daddy, he abandoned me. and He was never in my life. That's what the file says. But so that's why like in the book, I start off by saying what the files say and then I go into saying like this is what I know from my knowledge I don't know where they got this information from right so um that was like definitely how we how I came into contact with the child welfare system it was like 
the legal terms would be abandonment and neglect, but my mother was having financial issues and suffering. She fell victim to drugs and like some family drama along the way came into it. And this is how I ultimately got removed from the care of my mother. So they substantiated the abuse and neglect in some way, or did your mom relinquish her rights? My mother, she didn't relinquish her rights. And I came into care in 1996. So the system was operating in a totally different mechanism than what it is today. Although much haven't changed from the research that I've done, different, mm -hmm. it's like different precautions have been put into place. But when I talked to, again, I was so young, of course, I really didn't even understand what was happening around me and just talking to people. And I really, like I said that I would go further into this in details and I really didn't want to express it in my book because I feel like I really can't explain it. So mm -hmm. um, in, in my book, I do like mention kind of the ideology that my grandmother, I call her my grandmother, had at the time, but the way how my sister, because my grandmother, she would not have this conversation with me at all. It's like she leaves stuff, painful stuff in the past and she don't sure. want to revisit it. But in talking to my oldest sister, she was explaining to me that the mentality that the system had and the mentality that the customers adapted to was you do everything that they say and you don't say nothing and you don't because you don't want to say anything wrong because it will be held against you. So the advice that my grandmother gave my mother was like, just do whatever they say. And like, because and my grandma, she experienced having her children removed from her. And she was, the, and this is information that my sister gave me, was saying that my grandmother was just terrified of them and not wanting to make the wrong move to get her children back. So it was, she just adapted to this mentality that if you have a badge, I'm going to do whatever you say, whether it's wrong or right. I understand that totally. So I didn't realize that your grandmother um, had had her own kids removed prior. So she took you in and your, your mom wasn't able to get off the drugs or do whatever she needed to do to get you back. Eventually her rights were terminated within the system. No, my mother's rights never was terminated. Although in oh, wow. the in the file, it goes back and forth. Like sometimes it'll say that her rights was terminated. Other times it'll say that her rights were never terminated. Ultimately, when I have my birth certificate, it still has my mother's name on there. So sure. through that, I know, okay, she's her rights never were terminated. Um, but she, she never was able to reunify with us however my sister will say that my mother tried but her whatever she was doing and trying it wasn't good enough or she felt oppressed in some way which most parents they try so hard and they try so hard and some people keep trying to get it and get up get through it and then some people just give up so from the information that I'm receiving from how the system may have treated my mother, I she may have just given up and felt like she, she wasn't good enough to get through the process. Well, and she didn't completely give up because at some point in your teens, right, you did spend some time back with her. 
Right. So throughout different throughout different times of my life, I did spend time with her. Um, she got into programs, but she never went about it the legal way. She never went back before the court to be able to, to see me or reunify with me. So, I mean, that can give me insight on that maybe the system did beat her down when she was trying so she never went back to them because she felt like that was a hopeless avenue but again i can't and she's deceased now so i i don't know what really happened there so it's just like i'm just left in this limbo because even when i have my case file it doesn't tell me it doesn't like from how i know court what court documents look like and the processes of them um, it doesn't say, okay, in six months, we reevaluating where the family's at, mom is in um, noncompliance, we don't know where she's at, um, she's not cooperating with court orders. I don't have any of that information to rely on to say what was actually going on between the system and my mother. But yeah, she did try and re-engage with me throughout different times of my life right and and honestly the system didn't even know it seems like in your book they didn't even know that she was re-engaging they seemed very um disengaged with you throughout your childhood so you know i'm a social worker as well and your uh your book was very enlightening to me because i just felt like you know, we talk about kids falling through the cracks. Like this was a real story of like, nobody's checking up on this kid mm -hmm. ever. So you had all these different places, placements, but none of them, or maybe just a couple of them were even known to Department of Children and Families. You were kind of able to be passed around to different family members, different friends, parents or whatever. And as far as your experience, I want you to tell me a little bit about, you know, how your different placements came to be. But as far as your experience today as a social worker, do you think that that is common where tabs on a kid can just not be kept? I wouldn't like today here in Florida, because we, the way how home visits are documented now is that you have to take the picture of the, it have GPS coordination on it now. Ooh. So when you take the picture, you have to allow it, it's this circle thing that pops up on the screen. And once it, you have to let the, it load all the way and then it will capture your GPS, your location. And if you're not at the child's home, that court that uh, matches what's in the system, it will show up as if, as if this home visit was never done. So administrators will question, okay, what what happened, what something happened here, and then they can ask you um, what happened. Now, kids falling through the system how I did, I think that's like one provision that was put in place to keep that from happening. So I think that there has been improvement in that area. So I don't think that if a child was to fall through the cracks now, a lot, that means a lot of people just drop the ball all the way. Mm -hmm. Because I was thinking, even if 
a social worker. So in your case, you talk a lot about falsifying documents. Like there might have been home visits reported. They just didn't happen. And that may that, you know, it's there's a lot of things that to blame there. It's not just one bad social worker. It's just, a, you know, an overridden system with not very good checks and balances. Um, but yeah, even in the system you talk about today, like it's not a, a, a fix all because if you don't have a system that alerts like, hey, it's been a month and this kid hasn't been seen or you don't have administrators that are checking those GPS pings. I don't know if you have caseworkers that have learned that they can just kind of like drive by the house and let the GPS ping. <laughs> like there's ways that you do try to, everybody tries to fulfill what's expected of them. So I just felt like your case was such a gross um, example of like nobody taking duty of care. Um, like nobody's had eyes on this kid and at times could not tell you what residence or who her care provider is to the point that I forget if it was, um, I don't think it was your sister, but there was somebody that was getting payment, your payments, but you were not in their home. Can you talk a little bit about that? So you're talking about um, my aunt. Mm. So I'm I'm a child and I'm I of course I don't know how this uh system operates. I don't even know that you get paid for children that whether you're a relative licensed placement or whatever, I don't even know all of this at the time. But when I was talking to my great aunt and she mentioned uh like you've been up here all summer and she should have like my aunt should have sent the money up here because you've been up here for more than two months. And it made me, and that's, this is what made me think about, like, so she get money, like, she get money for me? And I, it I should get the money. <laughs> and I'm like, so why don't I get, I'm thinking, like, why don't I get the things that I want? Like, why is it that I always feel like an outcast if she actually gets money for me? So when I left from with her, it was like, when I left from with her to live with my sister and my sister, she doesn't get any money for me. It was like, okay what so who get like who's getting the money from me because I never went back home with my mom so where's the money going but as I got older and you become more aware of what's actually going on it was and you listen to the rumors that was going on around in my family and like my family people in my family actually do fraud so well did fraud so it was like, what? I don't, I can't really say like, this is exactly what she was doing. But I do know, like from hearing rumors around my family that people know how to beat the system and do what they need to do. So it was just an idea that after I was no longer living with her, she continued to collect money on my behalf, even though I wasn't with her. And for me, it was like, she said that she relinquished, like legally relinquished custodial rights over me and she no longer receives money from me but as I was growing and I realized that and knowing the system I'm, we never went to court for you to do this so and for it's like something would have triggered in that moment that if you would have called the department of children and families and said that this child who you guys placed in my care I no longer want something would have had to happen so because that didn't happen it's like what what happened in this moment for you to be able to do this so that's why later on when I did come back in contact with the system she was charged with abandonment oh she was 
Right. So what is the, what is, um, well, cause I was thinking like, she, I'm like, she's probably not going to call and say, Hey, stop sending these checks. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, it, it's not like, I know that it, it is fraud, but I feel like it's one of those, like, oh, as soon as somebody catches on, I guess I will just stop getting paid. Um, but that's interesting to me that she actually got charged with abandonment. So what is that charge? And what is it? What is what could somebody face? Nothing. And and this is something that I've learned, like as I worked in this, there's really no consequences to these charges. It's like, okay, you're charged with abandonment. Okay, you abandoned her. And it's just enough to actually shelter a child. And then it's like, do we have another caregiver? How are we going to move forward? What are we going to do with um, this child at this point? And that's just basically what it is. It's the caregivers, they don't go to jails. It's no consequences to abandonment. Do they have to pay back um, what they've received? I don't know. I can't, I don't know. I don't even, I didn't even really go far into sure. that, but for sure, um, I know that like one time when I was having a conversation with my dad, he was getting social security and he mentioned to me like he was paying back child support for, um, he was paying back child support because I was in the system. So for me, I'm just thinking in my mind, like, okay, so if I was lost in the system and you guys were not even caring for me or somebody had to be given money somewhere for him to have been charged um, back child support. So it's a lot of things that I can't explain. And it was just a lot. That was more of the reasons why I didn't try even to explain them. And I just wrote the book in a way where I would make, leave it for people to think because I don't have the answers. And it's just something that professionals or other people can think about when they are, when they come, if they um, are in this situation or what, if you're a professional, of course, dealing with it on a day-to-day basis, because it's just a lot of things that, as that I can't explain that I don't understand what happened in my life. And it was a lot of adults that were involved in a situation that was not stable. It wasn't healthy and that is why I experienced all of the things that I experienced as a child, which I think that no child should have to experience. Yeah, your book's called Label, um, Ward of the State. And I know that you were technically removed. I, I, feel, I felt like while I was reading it, like you were technically removed and that's about all that happened. And like you showed back up when you were like aging out, like, okay, so how does this work? And, you know, can I get some resources and they were like no like <laughs> you'd almost think that they'd give you some just for like this has been a huge miscarriage of justice um what for in your experience or from your words what do you feel like the state offered you like to me it feels like you could have done nothing you could have not been removed they could have never been called and your outcomes would have been the exact same i mean it was friends and family that you lived with and they didn't know about it. So in the beginning, when they removed and they put me in my first placement, they they knew about this. How they how did it go on on a journey that they didn't know about? Again, I just off of research, it's like, well, maybe it was a burdened workforce where um 
social workers were in and out, in and out every single day. So it's like today here, somebody's hired and you're giving them a caseload and then they're looking at this like, I'm not doing this. And then they quit tomorrow. So it's kind of like your case go back on the shelf. So that's how I think that my family caseload fell through the cracks because even for like in talking to my sister, because she's 10 years older than me. So she has more memory of what was going on at the time. And my file says that they referred my family to services. My sister says that we never engaged in any services. Um, just the other day, I was having a conversation with her and I was um, saying, you know, my file doesn't say what was the visitation order for our mother to see us. And she told me a conversation that she had with her grandmother. Well, so it's like, I call, I have grown to call this person my grandmother, but she's really not my biological grandmother. Sure. Um, she said, you know, and having a conversation with her, the state ordered that my mother had no contact with us. Okay. So it was just, I don't know how we ended up to fall through this situation, but the most interesting part about it was that even when I lived with other people, things were happening and the state was being called and they were in, they were in our house, they were in our presence. So these placements that I'm talking about when I'm reading my file, it was like, you guys really did know that I was there, but you just were not doing anything about it. So if a new allegation was called, then you will come and you will investigate on the surface of what was going on and not look further into the situation. So when I was almost molested by my sister's boyfriend, the state was called. Oh, right. And you're looking at the situation as, okay, did this did this rape happen? This is what you're looking at, but you're not even asking. You didn't take the that one step further and say, "Well, why is this child even in this house? Like, where is the mm -hmm. care you were supposed to look for? If my aunt was my caregiver, you were supposed to look for her and say, "Well, why is she not in your home?" So, when I'm looking at all of these situations, I'm just thinking of it as so people just really were not doing their job and just dropping the ball along the way and the ball just kept getting dropped. And in the end, when I was about 16, you asked me what did the state offer me? So they offered me supervision. So now when I'm 16, I have monthly supervision. I have, um, it was like the ball was to me the ball was so was dropped so much that the caregiver that I was living with they didn't even see the case appropriate to close before I turned 18 so you can it was like no we can't even take eyes off of this child anymore because so much has happened over the years that now we're here and we see her it's like we're going to give her a in Florida it's called APLA another permanent plan living arrangement so you didn't even see this a placement fit to close the case out prior to me turning. I mean, before I turned 18 and permanent guardianship or they, I know that they were like due to licensing and the caregiver complaining about not receiving any money from me because she wasn't my relative. Mm -hmm. um, they were exploring adoption, but she couldn't, or like turning her house into a licensed foster home. But she had a, she had an issue with domestic violence 
in the past. So just because she was a victim to that, they didn't approve her for licensing. So it was like, okay, that's not a permanent, this is not a situation that we feel that we can close in any way, shape, or form. So they kept, like, the case just stayed open until I was 18. So I got supervision. I got Medicaid. I, I received um, the tuition exemption waiver. I received, yeah, that was just basically all that I got in gift cards. When did the supervision start? When I was, I had to be about, I was 16. And what did that look like? What does supervision mean? So supervision means that the state, that your assigned caseworker comes to your house every month or as necessary to evaluate your home environment and assess for safety. Is this house still safe for this child? Is there food? Does she have appropriate sleeping arrangements? Does she have storage space? And you know, what's going on in the home? And the interesting part about that was when I, I knew what I was feeling in the home and I knew what was actually occurring in the conversations that was being had in the home. And when I got, when I received my file to read that my caseworker was documenting that this, that the caregiver that I had was telling the state, because everybody has this idea, everybody thinks they know what the system is, but I, pro I promise you in a holistic view, people who don't work in it they do not understand how this really works so people think that once you are a child that's removed from your parent whatever placement you lived in a check comes with this child this is what people think and that's not the truth at all but even as a child for myself thinking well of course this being the information that i'm receiving i'm not i'm not understanding why they're not giving me any help either any any financial help because you did you're you're dictating my life so i don't understand why you're not helping me just because of the kind of placement that i live in but that you put me in you did the home study and you approved this placement so you see it fit for me to live here but because of my relationship with the person who's the caregiver you're like we can't provide you any money for this child so i was very confused during that whole um, living arrangement. And then for the caseworker to document that the caregiver was telling him and her, because I had different case managers, that if you don't give me any money for this child, she has to get out of my house. I cannot mm -hmm. care for her. So for me, I was thinking, I'm looking at this like as a caseworker, if I had a parent, to, if I had not even a parent, if I had someone who was caring for a child tell me this that's something immediately that I have to act on because that's not a permanent healthy placement for this child because money is really the driving factor here and if this person doesn't get this this child is going to be homeless so there's I have to do something about that so when I'm reading the file and I'm seeing that this is actually what my caseworker is documenting in his home visit notes i'm asking myself again where's the oversight is the supervisor reading this because this is what i would say well what did she tell you at the last home visit she's going to tell you this every home visit and you're not going to do anything about it i would feel that this is not the most appropriate placement for this child and it in the long run it cost me a home 
it cost me that per the permanency plan that they had for me like this was supposed to be my permanent connection i don't even i don't have a relationship with this caregiver today so it wasn't a long-term relationship that you guys based on permanency goals this the plan failed so so if a biologically related person wants to take in somebody that is related to them they still have to go through the home study and all that but it's not assumed that they would get any type of stipend for that and you were saying like okay this is driven by money so we need to look at that but it might be legitimately that like hey i'm yeah i'm her biological relative i can consider taking her in we have no money is financial stability part of the home study financial stability is a part of home studies and if i in in cases i've seen if you if you're not a hundred dollars over your monthly bills they'll say that you're not financially fit to care for this child however it all depends on who is reevaluate who's evaluating the home study that's completed if they're going to let this go or if they're not but also this particular placement was not my we were i was not biologically related to her okay. this is a non-relative someone who's not related to me so what then what is the determining factor for whether you get money or not Rel blood, biological relationship but she wasn't able to get money no even though she wasn't biologically related she's not by so you have to either be a blood well the system have now changed which i did explain in my book because it things like this drive people so crazy that <laughs> you would think that it's the most common thing that this is common sense so yeah of course you're gonna get money no so at the time the determining factor to receive money was you either had to be biologically related to the child or you had to be a licensed placement by the state so okay if you were not those two you can still take this child but we're not going to give you any money for her sure so wait that's so that feels so backwards because it's like you don't actually have to be fit you don't have to be biologically related we're not gonna oh but they do look into the person they just don't give you any money right right so having a home study and all of that is not the same thing as becoming a license that's you know doing all the classes and everything you need to do to become a licensed foster. that's doing classes is just the extra step but you still go through the home study process it's crazy it's crazy so is it fair to say that you felt like the biggest failure was just like repeated non-oversight yes i can agree to that and the resources that are available to um that are available to youth based on their placement statuses um for me it was just like i said you have these ideas that okay for sure you came into my house and you removed me for sure you get to dictate where i live and who i stay with and the thing for me was in that position as a child i'm looking at the person that i live with as my caregiver and then i'm looking at the state as my caregiver as well so it's like of, I'm thinking in my mind that if this person don't do what they're supposed to do, the state will be my safety net. But mm. because of my placement status, it it don't turn out to be that way. So I was very disappointed 
I was very disappointed and I was very lost about what my actual current status was. And I didn't fully understand it until I worked in the system to, and to really get, to really gain like insight on what needs to be fixed about this situation. Because again, the same way how a licensed person can put you out of the house at 18 or in the middle of the night, a non-relative can do the same thing. They have no actual obligations to this child, which is why I believe that at the end of the day, the child should be first in every corner that you turn in this system. I don't care who they place with. And that's how professionals should look at these particular situations because even at 18, at 18 I was put out of her house. Yes, it could have, it, to me, it was amongst a lot of different things. It was driven by money because maybe she really did need the financial help. But right it's a way that you go about needing financial help. It's like, you don't put that burden off on the child or make the child feel like an outcast or make the child feel like there are a burden to you because you don't have enough money. Cause a, for me as a biological parent, I would never let my child feel that. And I would do my best to make sure you have everything that I can provide for you and still have a safe home and not let you know that you are a costly burden to me. And if you don't start dishing out some money, then you have to get out. That's, that's a different kind of conversation versus just not having enough money to care for a person. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. So when you went to age out of care, there are certain resources that they do offer kids aging out of care, correct? You're right, depending and, on your placement status. Okay, so so this whole placement status thing, is it to this day that depending on your placement status, you get some benefits? And yes. Okay, so um, depending on your placement status, you could get this independent living stipend. Mm-hmm. And you asked for that. Yeah. And they said, there's nothing we can do. Right. So when I went in at, when, when, when I came back in contact with the system at 16, there was all of this conversation. So I had a level of care assessment completed. And they were saying that basically prior to this, she has had a very unstable life. She needs a life coach. She needs a guardian ad litem. We need extra, uh, a guardian ad litem is another layer of oversight over a case. Like she needs everything. And for me, it was like one thing that I know working in the system is that when you receive a level of care assessment, you have to do everything on that level of care assessment when you go before a judge. I don't care what it is. That is What is a level of care assessment? A level of care assessment is a holistic report it just gives a, a holistic history of this person on different aspects of medical needs, um, school needs, what, what are your beliefs, what's your current placement status, and then it, like based on all the information that they gather, what relationships do you have? They make recommendations based off of that. They review your okay. history and everything, and then they make um, recommendations on the direction that this case needs to go in. Okay. So, they were 
based on my history and what the doctor gathered. And that was why I thought that it was so important for me to spell that out in my book so people can know like this is what was the plan when I when I came back in contact with the system at 16 and it was like she needs a guardian ad litem she needs independent living um you need to continue to search for a relationship just in case this one fails um you need to keep her away from these this this person anybody who have sexually abused her keep her away from them these were all of the recommendations that were made. So one, I never got a guardian ad litem to provide oversight over my case. Two, they they denied me the road. At the time, it was called the road to independence stipend. I was denied that due to my placement status, and even it was. And I did the way the reason why I did my placements the way how I did. I did like what it was five, six, seven, eight, or some six, seven, eight, something like that. That I did. It was like one of the chapters. It's like, yeah, I think it's five, six, seven, eight. So I did that that way because <laughs> I did that that way because I was flipping through different placements. So, um, and that was the ending of that was me approaching 18. And that's what my life was like when I was approaching 18. So although I was in this non-relative placement, I was actually flipping through non-relative placements and licensed placements. So all of these conversations are being had. So I don't even have a stable 16, 17 years of my life. Those are not even stable for me. So when I'm talking to the judge the day of my last, up until my last court hearing, when I'm getting ready to turn 18, I'm, I'm explaining what my current mindset is and what I have going on in my life. And I'm like, I'm not stable. And again, well, you hadn't even you hadn't even graduated high school yet, right? I hadn't graduated high school, and I'm in this very unstable situation, and I'm explaining this to the judge because every six months, for me, it's just for me, it's just kind of crazy how a person can come and ask you how you doing every month, ask you what do you need, all of these questions, and then just because you're turning eighteen, it's like all of that stops. Like, well, you didn't even make sure that the things that I told you that I needed, you didn't even make sure I had those things. And now that I'm turning 18 and I'm telling you that I really need help and I need some stability and I don't know what I'm doing and you can't offer me anything but a tuition exemption. I, I just really was in this state of mind where I just, you know, it, it just got to the point where like, it's nothing that you can do about it. You can't change their mind. They don't care how devastating your situation is. You, legally it's nothing that they could do about it and the judge is always going to do what the law says so it was just nothing that could be done so I just was very frustrated and it was just very disappointing to even have to hear them say like you know it's nothing that we could do for you and to go home for the caregiver to say well you grown like you're grown now so you need to figure it out it's like well who is going to teach me it was just like this very, it was like very rough and very aggravating and frustrating to think that the people that are supposed to care for you really are following guidelines or whatever it was mm -hmm. that they were following and not doing what you actually needed for them to do for you as a child. Mm. Yeah, there's no human element to it. Definitely not a human element. I was having a conversation with someone the other day and 
they were saying, I was saying, you know, when the system, I went to the DCF summit here in Florida this past December, and the current DCF secretary made a statement, and he said, 10 children in foster care today are safer than they were 10 years ago. And that statement really spoke to me because I remember 10 years ago where I was and I was saying like, wow, so you are acknowledging that the system failed children along the way. So I'm having this conversation with someone else and they made the statement. I was like, you know, now that this, now that the secretary has acknowledged that the children from 10 years ago, they have a story to tell because they were not safe. And you have just acknowledged that. Do the system come back and, you know, look for those kids or give those children reparations or anything? And he was like, well, ultimately, your parents are the one who failed you. And I was like, okay. And then he was like, ultimately, society failed your parents. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, but think about it. Like, I just think that's one way to think about it. Like, that's one perspective to think about it, to throw off accountability from the system. But if I'm a cat, if you're a cat and you're stuck in a tree and I'm walking down the street and I see that you're stuck in this tree and I decide that I'm going to go help you, it's now my responsibility to ensure that you get out of this tree and out of this situation because I have inserted myself into your business. So to leave you, I will ultimately feel that I failed you as well, along with your parents who didn't do what they were supposed to do, and along with society who have embarked all these struggles and barriers that people encounter to even fall victim to situations to have their children removed. So for me, I was just like, okay, um, the system inserts themselves in people's business. And then they go and they, rem- they, they have their rules because they're supposed to be the smart ones. They're supposed to be the protectors, the safety net, and you remove children. Whatever happens to that child on that journey is now your responsibility. And to say that is anybody else's responsibility, you're throwing off accountability. And if you feel that way, then shut the whole system down. Mm, that's powerful stuff. You know, I've done plenty of work and just being a social worker and being in a lot of space i've done a bunch of work around privilege but boy when i was reading about like you going to jail and you know sitting in jail on charges that weren't very you know that big of a deal for a kid your age i'm thinking oh my gosh like so many other people would have spent zero time or one night or whatever they would have gotten out they would have been you know bailed out by a parent or whatever and to think that there's just like people on low-level charges sitting in jail for god knows how long till their trial or whatever just because they don't have someone to support them that was a big deal but you did i mean big deal for me i was like how privileged are i mean it's a privilege to have somebody to bail you out of jail you know (laughs) (laughs) and i know that ultimately you know uh, there was a crime committed, but like even just how justice is served so much easier for people who have privilege or parents or, you know, despite all that, you went like gangbusters on your uh, high school, you were behind, you went gangbusters on your classes and stuff. What made you like, screw it, this is the one thing I get is this tuition reimbursement and I'm going to make something of it. And you got your undergrad and your uh, master's, um, both in social work? 
No. I have a bachelor's in social work and a master's degree in public administration. Right. Okay. So one, what drove you to like, I'm doing that. And then, um, you know, what are your, your plans and hopes to do with those? I believe in being a change that I want to see. Clearly I can't tell people what I want. So I have to do it myself. So I was like, okay, I'm going to become a social worker. I'm going to go to school for social work. I'm going to become a dependency social worker. And this is what I want to do to help people, to help other youth in my situation that experienced the same, the system in the capacity that I did. Now, along the way, I'm doing this, I'm working, and, and I achieved this goal and became a dependency caseworker. So I'm just, I was just so happy to be that. Like, okay, I'm here. In the beginning, I'm, I'm managing things and things just start to go left. And then I start to see more things where it was like, I call, I, I call myself a youth advocate, but I've been thinking how to change this term because I advocate now, like I'm like a child welfare advocate. So I advocate on systematic changes. I advocate for parents. I advocate for family members. So it's like, I'm really this holistic advocate where I'm not on even not only talking about like children need this when they're aging out because of what I see. So another issue that was going on with the tuition exemption in Florida was the law says that we can go to college until we're 28, but the education system says you only can use this waiver up until 120 credits, whether mm. if this includes remedial classes or not. So that was another barrier along the way. So I'm thinking in my mind, systematically, why is it that you always give us a good resource, but then you put a barrier in, a, in, in place to not help us to see so i'm more driven i love talking to clients i love talking to people um because people are just clients i don't really like to call people clients but sure. i love talking to people and i was thinking i don't want an msw me neither i, I got you <laughs> i didn't want an msw because i was like okay i'm gonna go to graduate school and I'm going to be talking about all of these hypothetical situations again and I had already had experience in the field with real life experiences so I was like yeah I did that in my bachelor's degree so I was thinking you know what really excites me policy excites me I love to how can we really come to a have a conversation and implement policies laws about how this can really help the world how can we really be impactful to people? So this is what drove me to um, getting my master's degree in public administration. And then the different things that I was experiencing within the agency of, you know, I, I, in my book, I talk a lot about overburdened workforce. I, I received a certificate in human resources policies and management because Thanks. I'm just thinking about well, how are people supposed to be treated in the workplace? Because I was working in a very chaotic, very toxic workplace that was so energy draining. So I really wanted to learn more about the human resource aspect of it, of running an organization or running a business. So I definitely got a um, certificate in that. But as far as my public administration degree, it's just always about me. Like I even wanted to go to law school. I love to debate. I love to argue. I love to have conversations. That is so great. But 
I want to be more effective than that. I don't want to be in the courtroom with people trying to get them out of a situation. I want to, I want to write the policy. Let's put the policy mm. in place so people don't even experience these things where you're in a court having to go through these situations unless you necessarily have to. Because we're, I, I would, I don't want people to think that I'm saying that you know some right. situations don't exist because they do. However, working in the system, I promise you, the cases that I have seen. As a person who didn't work in the system, I'm thinking that children were just out here being beaten, left here, in all these other places, and then experiencing all of these things with their parents, and then I get into the system, and most of the cases that come, majority of all the cases come in are centered around poverty, and mm-hmm. it, it just drives you crazy to the fact that, okay, her house is dirty, well, her children don't have to be removed because her house is dirty. Like, is the roof going to cave in and kill them all? No. So, you know, if you feel that way, you can in, you can put in a service for a cleaning service to clean this person's house to satisfy you, I assume, because this is just coming into somebody's house and telling them that their house is dirty is solely your opinion. So, And even if the roof is going to fall in, no. resources for roofs <laughs> definitely <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> that. in a hotel in a hotel let's put you guys in a hotel and let's go through the process to get this fixed because of course a roof can be very costly so poverty may affect why this roof roof isn't getting fixed but then you know for me I go so much deeper right if you're in this unless you are a homeowner is it your responsibility to fix the roof no it's your landlord's responsibility so why are you even in a home of that with the roof falling in and why can't you move why because okay moving and rent housing is not affordable so you go into all of these different things so the ultimate question is how do you fix the foster care how do you fix the foster care crisis um when people when i hear that question it's like we're thinking about the actual system so after removal so when your child is removed from you, the system relies on the community to re-strengthen this family. So it's like in the beginning, you think that the system is this this in-house situation where you come in and everything is within the system. And then, but working for it, it's like, no, your children are removed, you are assigned to a case manager, and the system is just the overseer of everything that the community is going to do for you. So when we talk about fixing this crisis, we need to re-strengthen society. We need to reshape society. We need, it's not about fixing the actual system. It's about what are all of the things that are inserted into a case plan that you need? Therapy drug rehabilitation, housing, employment. These are all things that day-to-day people have to have and go through, but why is that such a struggle for everyday people that are not that are that have no engagement with the system? Why are these things such a struggle? So, if we fix those crises, then we are ultimately helping a the foster care system. Yeah, or another generation not enter care. 
I absolutely love that. You know, we talk about this all the time that it is more of the community's responsibility and we need to build awareness of the responsibility that the community does have for these families and unwanted or undercared for children. So we hope to raise that awareness through this podcast. So can you let everybody know where they can get your book? So you can get the book on my website, www three W's of course, dot KenishaAnthony.com or you can get the book at Books and Books online as well. Um, ebooks are only available on Amazon and Apple Books. Okay, and I know that you have some social accounts, so do you want to promote those? So you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at About Kenesha. And I also have a book page about labeled. So, and I'll definitely be putting more educational pieces on the about label page, but you can definitely follow me and my journey and learn more about me on my personal Instagram, which is about Kenesha. All right, you guys, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't heard of labeled, go out and get it. Um, It was a great book and it's a resource that you can give to people at your facilities or other parents that you meet, anyone that you serve. It's a great look into the life of a foster kid who also became a child welfare advocate. Kanisha's doing great things. Make sure you follow her on Instagram and Twitter. And tune in next week when we talk to Kia from Raising Cultures. It's going to be a great episode. I'll see you there.